Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Welcome to Race Retro. And uh, the first of two sessions today with our, our guest star for the weekend. Um, so we're coming back at 2.30 for, for more chat. And uh, I'm pleased to say that later on we'll be joined by Jonathan Williams, son of Sir Frank, um, who basically is the curator um, for the Williams Heritage Centre. So he, he will be talking to us uh, with Damon um, about the cars. Um, but for now, it's the main man himself. Please welcome Damon Hill. Thank you, Damon. Thank you. He's Damien and I'm Damon, right? Some people call me Damien, but it's not the same. No, I, I get no. Damon all the time. You get Damon so, all the time. Yes, yes. So we clear so that I'm, up. I'm Damien with an I-E-N, so uh, that's uh, the key thing. So yes, um, if you, obviously I didn't say I'm, I'm uh, Motorsport Magazine's editor if you don't know me, so, uh, which um, probably most of you won't. So uh, anyway, Good. we shall start off by talking about 20 years ago. Yes. You became world champion. Does it seem like 20 years? No, it seems like about a couple of years. It is terrifying how t quickly time flies. So 20 years ago, I was driving that car over there, and that was the state of the art in Formula One. I have to say, it's kept its looks. And if you look around at these cars in this collection, they, they all look pretty uh, amazing-looking beasts. That was the, I think that was the active car. Yeah, that was... FW13, I think, actually. That's 13B, 13B yes. Yeah, 13B. Yeah. And then there was a, the 14 there, which is... Um, this is uh, 15C, which was your, your first race car, 93. Okay, so that's 15. Yeah. So that's moved on a bit from Nigel's car. But basically, yeah. um, I've driven all of them. Yeah, I've driven all of those cars. Well, your Williams career, I think it started in that car as a test driver, didn't it? It did. I did um, this actual car. I was uh, given... Um, I think it was they were developing the uh, semi-automatic gearbox on it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was asked um, to, to do a running in lap around Silverstone. And uh, it has a two-stage uh, rev counter on it, which is a kind of a bar graph that goes across. Yep. And so from naught to about 11, um, it, it, it shows they don't change the numbers. So it, it basically resets when it gets to about 9,000 RPM and then yeah. goes back to... The, the relevant numbers. Yeah. So they sent me off and they said, don't go over about 11,000 RPM. Yeah. And um, they didn't tell me it had a two-stage rev counter. So I thought I was probably doing about 2,000 RPM. Right. And I went all the way around the old Silverstone. And when I came back, it was on fire. So, um, good because start. I was going so slowly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's good to hear it goes all the way to 11, like all, uh, yeah. all, all good uh, dials. So uh, um, how did the Williams deal come about in terms of becoming a test driver? Um, it, it basically be happened because um, I was, we were, I was a bunch of us in uh, Formula 3000 at the time, and Mark Blundell had the, had the sideline of getting the, the Williams test drive, so that was a bit, a bit of a plum job. You could tell that that was going to be something worth having. And um, so Mark got a better paid job at McLaren and left, and left a vacancy, and gave me the nod that actually there was a drive going. So um, I went along and put my name forward, and uh, I at the same time had been doing better in Formula 3000 and, uh, and so they gave, they gave me an opportunity to drive their cars. So it was a very, very lucky break. And of course your, your time um, coincided with the arrival of Adrian Newey, who is the key architect of these cars essentially in terms of uh, uh, the aerodynamics of the cars and where he, where he took Williams to. Adrian was very definitely the coming man. You could see the, the march was, uh, it had something unique, it looked different, uh, it had that fantastic race at Paul Ricard and uh, this was clearly going to be the way forward. Um, and Adrian had, uh, he was taken on by Williams, and so the Williams team was at the, the, the first rung of the ladder of a very dominant period with Adrian coming on board. And of course, Patrick Head is, is incredible engineering experience, uh, being able to build reliable, bulletproof cars. And the two of them uh, went together fantastically um, and I got in right at the ground level. I was also uh, Pat, uh, Paddy Lowe, was, uh, who's now obviously the technical director at um, Mercedes, was also the guy being developing the, the systems on the uh, active suspension. And of course, while you were testing uh, for Williams, the, you know, the, at the time, uh, the top team in Formula One, you were making your Grand Prix debut for Brabham, which really wasn't the Brabham that we all remember from previous years. And you were at the back of the grid every, every week trying to qualify, pre-qualify, I guess, in those days as well. Um, the thing I remember about 93, obviously, was that big swell of give, give Damon the drive, um, which they, yeah. they finally did. What, what do you remember of that period? 
Um, well, this was well, at the time when Nigel left, you mean? Yeah. yeah so Nigel uh, surprised everyone and said that right, so he's, he's left this vacancy and, and everyone else had gone. I think Riccardo Patrese had signed up for, for Benetton and uh, so they looked around and there was no one left but me. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I fitted the bill because I'd done a lot of the groundwork and uh, development work. So um, another lucky break, you know, thanks to Nigel. He kind of paved the way for, for a lot of drivers, I think, to come to come through, um, but uh, by, by leaving, uh, literally leaving a hole in the team, um, uh, that, that meant I could uh, pester Frank and Patrick. But you go from the Brabham, which you really couldn't do anything with, to the most sophisticated, best F1, F1 car on the grid, the 15C here behind us. Yeah, Incredible. well, the, the, the Brabham thing was, was obviously, you had to show you could do it in F1. Um, F1 is very... Um, it's very kind of uh, insular, it's sort of inward looking and so if you're not actually out there on the track then you can't really, can't really know you exist so even if you're doing well in Formula 3000 or GP2 you know you're really not on the radar but if once you once you get in to a, a qualifying format and you're in a car then um, then you're on the radar so it was important, the Brabham was very important and gave me it proved to, to prove to them that I could do it and then I'm in the, in the best car on, in Formula 1 um, with a three times world champion as a teammate. Yes, Alain Prost, of course, was your teammate in 93. I mean, what, what, um, what was the relationship with Alain like? Uh, it was fantastic. I mean, there was, there was no animosity. I, I didn't have a relationship. I didn't have a competitive relationship. There was no history uh, of anything. I know I, I, besides which, I was always a big fan of, of Alain's style. I thought he was a, he was a very stylish um, competitor. Um, there are issues that he'd had or drivers had had with him in the past, but, uh, you know, like uh, Nigel and, and Ayrton had their issues famously. But, um, you know, I think Alan is very stylish. I, I've always thought he's gone about it in a quiet way and, um, and his driving style is, is so economical. It's, a, it's, it's the way I sort of... I didn't model myself on him, but I found myself driving like that. Yeah. Uh, I thought I was... You know, I like the idea of being economical. And um, so I just was enormously privileged to have been in the team with him. I mean, I think, from right, it, it was pretty early, obvious early on. I know Ayrton beat him at, at Donington in the wet, that famous victory. But it was pretty obvious Alan was going to be world champion that year. But you had a, an incredible run of a hat-trick of wins. Um, Hungary, Belgium and Monza. Um, I mean, that must have been a, a terrific time for you to finally get the first win and then see it followed up with two straight after. Yes, I was, I was very much supposed to be um, number two in the team and uh, the, 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 there was a French element uh, in Renault and so there was a bit of uh, Anglo-French rivalry as we, we like a bit of that and Frank, uh, Frank, Frank liked that too. And so um, when the opportunity came, I was there to, um, to take, take over from Alain when he um, had incidents or whatever it was that stopped him. Yeah. But um, having said that, I mean, I do, you know, Alain was late 30s, I think, when I, I was, I was early 30s, so I wasn't that much uh, younger than him, but you know, he'd been racing a long time, and I think that the driver tends to, tends to f drop off, the performance drops off a little bit at the end, so uh, I measured myself against Alan Prost, but uh, I would say that he, was, he, was, uh, he wasn't under the, the, the most stress he'd ever been under in his career, but it was fantastic to race alongside him. So, as you come to the end of that first year, um, it uh, transpires the t team have signed Ayrton Senna for 94, Alan retires as world champion, uh, and you go from having Alan Prost as your teammate to Ayrton Senna, which yeah. is uh, it's quite tough, isn't it? Well, I mean, when you, when you think I actually was sort of Nigel's understudy as well, and I raced in the same team with three of the best drivers of their of the era. And so Ayrton came with a whole different set of um, <clears throat> uh, kind of, I was going to say baggage, but it's not baggage, but he, came, he, he had a different aura about him than, than Alan. Alan was very quiet, got on with his job, but Ayrton was the big name and uh, enormously a powerful figure in sport globally. You know? And uh, so a little bit intimidated to be uh, alongside him and watch what he, the way he went about things. And I think he was a little bit wary of me as well because um, he, was a, he was a new boy in the team. Yeah. And his, his time, obviously, with you, 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 it was tragically cut short. You had only a few races as, as teammates before Imola uh, and everything that transpired there. Um, I was reading something last night that you, um, we were interviewed you about eight years ago, and you mentioned in the article that um, there was a lot of, obviously, uh, data analysis in the wake of what happened at Imola, and you were of the opinion that it was a driver error with Senna and 
Is that, is that correct? Is that how you see it now? Or? No, because I don't like the term driver error. I think, I think Ayrton proved to everyone that he would push as hard as he could and he would go to the very limits of his ability. And he did that consistently throughout his career. That's the way he drove and that's the way he, he was an attacking driver. I think there are a number of uh, contributing factors uh, in any, any situation where something goes wrong. It's never one thing. It's a combination of things. And, and there was a number of uh, mitigating circumstances which had conspired to make that perfect storm, really, which was, which was Imola, and particularly um, with, with um, Ayrton's accident. And so, you know, you, you put... Some, some t- this, this only takes one straw, doesn't it, for the, for the, the camel to break its back. And um, so uh, I, my angle was I went through the data and I was looking for my own concern and I was very entitled to, to know what happened. So I did go through the data with the team and they, they invited me up to Williams to look through everything to, to, to see if I had anything I could mention or talk about. And, and the more, in every way I looked at it, it was, I couldn't see that there was anything that indicated that it was a failure of the car. I mean, everything to me looked consistent with, um, you know, a, a, a monumental um, tank slapper that, 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 that just was too much for, for Ayrton even. So, um, and the, the fact is that he was killed in a very unlucky way. I mean, that he was a part of the suspension, uh, came back into the cockpit, um, and that could happen at any speed, anywhere. Yeah. You know, it could happen going out the pit lane. You know, it was... Uh, so, a lot of bad luck involved in, in, in and factors. So, m- my point is that Ayrton was a racing driver, and he raced 100% every time he got in the car. And he was certainly on 100% at Imola at that time. So Formula One in devastation at this time. Uh, The team obviously on the floor as well. Um, One of the things that is most memorable from your career is how uh, the team kind of was picked up essentially by by you. You won the Spanish Grand Prix a couple of races later and this incredible season unfolded between you and Michael Schumacher uh, and suddenly you were a world championship contender. Um, I think a lot of people have pulled parallels between what happened to you that season and what happened to your dad yeah. in, um, in 68 when, when we lost Jim Clark. Yeah. Um, I mean, it must have occurred to you. Well, it, it was a rather spooky um, parallel, but the, the difference being my dad was an experienced driver in, in 68 uh, and already a world champion. So I'd, I, I was very much a junior driver. I'd never been in that position before. And it was all a very powerful emotional season. There's a lot to cope with. And the team and the guys, all the guys, you know, had to pull themselves together. And what they needed more than anything was a, was a good result. Because in, in some bizarre way, that was our kind of re- response to, to the loss of, uh, of Ayrton, you know, our, our driver, our number one driver and the, and the sports driver, you know. So um, it, it, was, it was important to get a good result because um, the you know, that whole business of fighting back after a setback and stuff is, uh, is what sport is about, I suppose. Yeah. Two key performances of that year, Suzuka and the final race, obviously, in Adelaide. Suzuka, perhaps your greatest victory in terms of performance? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Suzuka was a, a, another level of difficulty and, and stress and uh, importance. You know, I had to win Suzuka uh, to retain any hope of, of the World Championship going to the last round and uh, so Michael Schumacher was was well prepared the Benetton team were all ready to celebrate in Japan and then we managed to deny them at least a couple of weeks yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and it went on down to to Adelaide but the, the Suzuka race was particularly difficult because of the conditions and it was you know run through a typhoon and I think it's my my sky uh, fellow commentator Johnny Herbert calls the calls the restart is that right <laughs> that's right that's right Absolutely. And of course, Adelaide, you had Schumacher rattled. You were, you were catching him and he made his mistake. You had no idea what happened, came around the corner. And uh, well, I think we all know what happened next. Um, what, what went through your mind in those, uh, those seconds and the, those minutes after that, uh, that incident? Well, I was, a bit, <laughs> I was a bit annoyed that I got a damaged car, frankly. I mean, I could see he was out of the race. And so I thought, well, that's great. So immediately, I could see the suspension was, was damaged. Yeah. And I did actually ask the team, how long would it have taken to have repaired the, the front wishbone? Yeah. And uh, they said, no, it was just not, not, not going to be possible, even though there are only very few finishes in the race. So I might have got the extra point 
Uh, but uh, I probably would have been about 10 laps down. I think there's a cut-off point somewhere. Yes. But it, it must have um, catapulted you into 95 full of confidence out of the way, the way that season ended. But 95 was a very difficult season for you. Schumacher was in Benetton with the Renault engine and um, there was a mistakes. It didn't go your way. What was your, what was your feeling at the end of 95? Well, I was pretty crushed after 95. It was pretty devastating. I really thought I had a chance to take the fight to, to Michael and uh, I didn't think I did as well as I could have done. There was, some, there was a whole story to 95, but it taught me a lot and it actually prepared me for 96. So the whole, the whole process of coming into F1 very late... Um, I was 33 when I started my first season, so I was running out of time, running out of years pretty rapidly, and uh, so I had a lot of learning to do in a very short space of time, and, and I think being in my second season in, a, in, in, in with a title fight chance uh, taught me a lot and prepared me, and I think that 90, you know, it, actually if you think about it, in three years I became world champion, so... Yeah. Um, at 2.30, Jonathan Williams is joining us, as I said at the beginning. So we'll talk through the cars a little bit more detail when Jonathan's here. But in 96, it was a different story completely. You came in uh, off the back of the... You won the last race in 95, and I think that seemed to give you some momentum going into the new season. You had a new teammate, of course, in, in uh, the baggy uh, overall-wearing Jacques Villeneuve, who yeah. was the, the new kid in town, um, a little bit of a rebel. Yeah. What was your relationship like with Jacques? It was very good. I mean, he was, he was very cheeky. Um, he was... Uh, you know, he's a young, young guy and he was coming to fight and he was just won Indianapolis 500 and the Indy Championship and so he was full of himself and, uh, and I liked him. I, I, I thought, you know, I, I thought I related to him a little bit because I could relate having had a father who's a, world, who's a racing driver, a Formula One racing driver. So I kind of knew a little bit where he was coming from but um, he was, th he only wanted to, to win, you know, fair and square. He was a real fighter and I, and I was... Um, Really, really enjoy being teammates with him. I mean, he's, uh, it, but he, you know, he, 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 he was a little bit quirky. That's, there's no doubt about it. But I think he was a good character. One of the key um, memories of that incredible season, you get to the summer and come to the German Grand Prix, and then there's a story published that week that uh, you're not going to be retained for the following year. Um, just shocked the country really I mean, everyone was behind you obviously at the time and to suddenly hear that you were going to lose your drive as you're on the cusp of your your greatest moment what went through your mind during that summer well at first I, I was a bit bemused you can understand that I mean I always worked on the principle that I'd only keep my job if I did a good one you know and uh, I thought well if I win the championship then that that would be enough but um, as people kept saying to me no this is Formula One and uh, different rules apply and, and I think that a lot of people here will Will, will know and what have followed Formula One and its curious ways and its twists and turns. And plans are made years in advance. You know, they, are, they, don't, they don't make spur of the moment decisions. And so uh, I think I rather spoilt the, the plans slightly by, by doing well in 96. Um, and uh, so it was a bit, of <laughs> a bit of a funny feeling winning the championship and getting out of the car knowing I'm not, I'm not going to get back in it again. Yeah, I mean, your whole approach to that final, you know, all that pressure building up, and you, you've got this in the back of your mind as well. It must have been a really odd time for you. Odd yeah, yeah, I kind of coloured my view of, of the world slightly. Yes. <laughs> and for the following year, you go from uh, you know, the best team, best car on the grid to Tom Walkinshaw's Arrows, <laughs> Yamaha engine, unproven. Yeah. Um, wow. I mean, what... what um, what did it feel like going into that? You knew, you knew it was going to be tough. No, it was going to be a development year if, if, at best. You know, and if, in actual fact, the car that came out afterwards with, with Barnard's input was a fantastic car, and I think with a decent engine, not saying the Yamaha wasn't as good as, as, good as it could be, but it wasn't the, the class of the field. Um, but I thought the chassis was good. I thought the team made a, made a decent effort, and uh, I enjoyed driving it. I had a fantastic um, day in Hungary when um, we nearly won the race. I was going to say, we've had some questions from our motorsport readers on the website that have been um, filing in over the past couple of weeks. Um, one of the questions was about Hungary, um, Hungary 97. Um, and that, uh, that incredible... I mean, you got so close to winning the race. Um, what was going through your mind uh, as, uh, as the, the laps ticked down? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly a championship at stake. So it was really just a one-off weekend where everything clicked and everything went well. And we, we had the advantage of the Bridgestone tyres, which are new to Formula 1. And Goodyear rather screwed up their tyre choice. And I could see that um, they were struggling. So um, 
and I loved Hungry. I got on really well with it as a track. I liked, you know, I liked setting the car. So it was, I got, I got a good qualifying position. And then when the tyres started going off from the Goodyear guys, I thought, I'm in, you know, in a great position here. I overtook Michael Schumacher and um, was leading the race for about 20 laps. And I thought, well, I'll tell you what, if the car's not going to last much longer. Um, and if it doesn't get to the end, then uh, I've had a fantastic bit of fun. It's been good this weekend. And it kept on going. <laughs> it just kept on going. I just yeah. couldn't believe it was going as long as it did. And then it broke. <laughs> um, one of the questions from the, the readers, uh, a chap called Ian B. Um, he asked an interesting question. Because you, 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 you drove for some of the biggest characters in terms of team bosses that, that you could possibly think of. Obviously, Sir Frank, Walkinshaw, and uh, Eddie Jordan, of course. Um, how similar or different were they, is the question. There's no similarity at all between any of them, apart from the fact that they ran Formula One teams. And they're very competitive. They wanted to win, all of them. But, um, I mean, Sir Frank, uh, you know, he, he has his own very um, understated style. His, his, you know, quintessentially um, stoic uh, approach. You know, he doesn't say... He's not very superfluous with words, you know, chooses them very carefully, whereas you can't say the same about Eddie. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if there's, a, there's an extra word he can use, he'll use it. Yeah. But, and, um, and Tom was always pretty tough with drivers, wasn't he? Tom was what? Sorry. Tom was always tough on his drivers. Yeah, well, that was the, that was the, uh, that's the kind of impression he gave, that he's a tough guy. And he was a tough guy, but, I mean, I, I think he was always pretty straight with me, actually, I think. And, uh, uh, th I mean, this is the relationship you have in F1 with team. In those days, they were teams owned by individuals. Um, and now we have teams owned by companies, car companies and drinks companies and stuff. So they're slightly, the relationship has slightly changed. But, you know, so if a, if a team boss gave a driver a, a bollocking, then uh, that was all good fun. You know, that was all part of the, 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 the frisson, the, the kind of fizz that, that made the sport interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they like, everyone's trying to compete to get, a, to get the biggest headlines in, in those days. Um, and it was all part of the fun. I, didn't, I never really felt like... Uh, uh, I, I mean, it was tough with, with Williams because when Frank says you're a Pratt, you know, it's, bit, it's a bit embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, other big characters in your, in your time, of course, Murray Walker, um, for all of us, was uh, the, the voice of the sport. Um, he was a big part of your story in a way because it was through Murray's eyes and through his commentary that we sort of experienced what you were going through. Um, one of our questions, Paul Hadsley wants to know about that relationship with Murray and how important he was to you. Well, I have to explain to people that um, the relationship with Murray is very different um, when you're driving because I don't hear the commentary. Obviously, I hear it later on, but you guys are hearing the commentary and you've got Murray talking about me and stuff. And, and the fact of the matter is, I, I missed a lot of it, you know. So, but uh, obviously, we, we absolutely dearly love Murray. And Murray, Murray put his stamp on all, all the history of the sport uh, up until the time he stopped commentating, has got the stamp of, uh, of Murray Walker's absolutely wonderful enthusiasm and his, his zest for life and his uh, communicating all of the uh, astonishment and amazement and horror and, uh, and uh, bewilderment and, and uh, 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 just enjoyment of, of the sport, you know, is through, it through, comes through Murray's voice. And uh, so I'm very, very lucky, you know, because when I won the championship, I've got Murray saying, you know, I've got to stop because I've got a lump in my throat. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a priceless, uh, a priceless little piece of history. Yeah, it's one of those great sporting moments. I mean, you, you can tell us, because you're, you're sitting here now, what's it like to cross the line and realise that you're Formula One world champion? Well, you don't... You, the truth is you don't... It doesn't hit you immediately. Um, I think racing drivers, quite often people forget that they've been in a, a massively concentrated state of mind for two hours, up to two hours. And when the race stops, you don't just suddenly switch out of that. It takes a long time. So when you see racing drivers sitting in the, in the briefing, at the, okay, they get out of the car and they wave and they jump around and that's fantastic and they are elated. But when they go into the press conference, they're still in the race. Their heads are still in the car. And it takes, it takes sometimes days to come out of that state of concentration. So um, it, for me, it took, it took quite a number of days before you actually sort of go, okay, you've, you, you've done it now. Um, but uh, I have to say, it, over time, it's, you, you really, really do appreciate it because you just simply can't go back and do it again. So that's that. Yeah, 20 years later, it must be... It's, yeah. not, it's not the defining thing. You're, you've got lots of other facets to your character than just being a world champion, but it, it's, a, it's a huge thing, isn't it? It's now. a huge thing, and that's a measure of, of, 
of our society and the sport and the importance of sport. You know, people, uh, I'm very lucky. I, I, I tried my hand at something that everyone, a lot of people take, a note, take notice in. You know, there's so many people who put themselves through much greater trials and, uh, and stresses and they'll never be heard of. Um, uh, I, like, I like listening to, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a morbid person, but I, li- I do like listening to obituary programs and reading the obituaries and you realise how many people have had such amazing lives that we never even hear about. Uh, until they've gone so um, you know I'm lucky that's, that Formula 1 has got such a high profile but um, you know when you look at Paralympians and people like that and, and, uh, and other people in other walks of life not in sport you know they, they just endure the most amazing um, uh, tough experiences and, and survive them and, and come out ahead and uh, so we've you know it can be seen a little bit as frivolous what we do in actual way you know it can, I sometimes wonder whether we put too much emphasis on it one of the key um, things I remember about your career also was um, the amount of pressure that you were under in terms of the, the popularity. I mean, we, we thought Nigel Mansell changed everything for, for motor racing in many ways in terms of the, the mass popularity that he brought to the sport. And you followed it up, essentially, during those, those, those years at Williams. What was it like to be in the middle of all that? Well, I, I benefited enormously from his legacy. You know, Nigel was so uh, popular, he, he represented sort of British bulldog spirit, I think, and so he got a massive following from, from people who wanted Britain to succeed in sport. Uh, they weren't necessarily all motorsport fans, but they, he definitely uh, thrived on that, you know, and, and so I was, I was very much sort of sucked into the, that vortex that he left. But I think that motorsport has always had a massive following in this country, so you can go back to my dad's era and Jim Clark, and you know, in the 60s was also a heyday, and you know, in the 50s, and you got Moss, um, and he was a massive, he was a pop, pop star, really, wasn't he? And yeah. so hundreds of thousands of people would, would get in their Austin 7s or on their bicycles and go up to Silverstone and, um, and watch in the 50s. And uh, uh, so I think the popularity was always there, but the, world has, the world's changed with television. And when I, my dad was racing, we couldn't, couldn't see it. And I think Nigel hit the sweet spot with, a, with the uh, introduction of better coverage uh, of, of Formula One on TV when we had free-to-air. And uh, so the, the audiences were, were, were huge. Um, and now it's more fragmented, you know. And, and uh, I, if you want, you know, nowadays you can get closer access, but you have to pay for it. So I recommend anyone <laughs> listening to... Uh, to, to Dig deep <laughs> and get their Sky uh, F1 subscription, and you'll get you'll get much closer to the sport. You seem to enjoy the uh, the coverage, you know, working in Formula One now from the other side, alongside Johnny, of course, as well. He's a good old mate as well. So, what's the what's the perception of, of Formula One from you from you now? Because you had a you had a break from the sport. You finished with Jordan. It, from the outside, it looked like you had had enough. You was you I know, had had enough. I yeah. had 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 quite enough of it, and I and I wanted really to get away from it. Um, but then my, my son said, I want to be a racing driver. <laughs> so, so I sort of was forced back into it a little bit. And I have to thank him, really, in many ways, because I, I went back to all the circuits that I thought I'd never visit again, like Knock Hill and Cabral Park. And, uh, and it was great. It was, it was brilliant. You know, we, we went back to the beginning. And uh, I do smile, because all the dads now, all these racing drivers and their dads, their sons are now karting, so they're having to go through the whole thing again as well. But... Yeah, it brought me back into the sport, and um, it's been a huge part of my life. So it's not something you can just um, you can just escape that easily. It's, the gravity is too strong. Pulls you back, yes. Um, one of the questions we had from our, our readers actually was about your early days and the racing around the British circuits and you know, revisiting them with your son. In terms of your driving, which which was your favourite circuit in Britain when you were? In Formula Ford, Formula well, 3. Well, uh, you know that, because I you filled in your questionnaire, didn't I? You did, did yes. yes. <laughs> so you know the answer to that. And I, I actually, I did answer. I gave it some thought. And um, I liked, that, that I think circuits and, and cars, they need to be matched to each other. And, and the Formula 3 cars we used to race uh, were fantastically well-balanced, good cars, but they were quite underpowered. So you needed a, you needed a circuit that wasn't that, um, it, it wasn't that, uh, vast, you know, someone like Silstone, you get lost. In a Formula One car, it's fantastic. Spa, Formula One car, it's fantastic. But I actually thought that the old Brands Hatch circuit, before they changed the chicanes, after um, some of the accidents they had with trolley and so forth, um, the old Brands Hatch circuit, long circuit, was one of the best circuits you'd ever going to go on. It was so fun to drive. And uh, in a Formula Three car, we had some great races and um, some really good laps. So I, I put that down. 
Okay, well, we're nearly running out of time for this session this morning. As I say, we are returning at, at 2.30, and Jonathan Williams is going to join us. We'll, we'll talk more about the, the cars and uh, uh, more detail about his uh, Damon's Williams career. Um, I'll just finish on one point. Race Retro is very much about bikes as well as cars, and you started your career, of course, on motorcycles. One of our questions is, um, do you still ride a motorcycle? Um, I don't regularly ride. I did go to the Isle of Man. Um, I got a bike from uh, just up the road, Triumph. Um, uh, one of their nice uh, retro bikes and I went to the Isle of Man Classic TT oh, in wow, September yeah. last year. That's supposed to be a great event. Uh, it was fantastic. It was, it was such a lot of fun and um, they're absolutely barking mad. I was obviously going around <laughs> the circuit but, um, but I did love it and um, yeah, my, my, my initial experience of anything motored, powered was, was on a motorbike and uh, I rode bikes all my life and uh, but uh, you're a little bit exposed, I would say that. Yeah. yeah. But if you ask Murray, he, he always says first love was always bikes. His father raced them, obviously, as well. John Surtees, he won't go quite that far, but you get the impression that the, because the bikes came first and he grew up with them. Um, would, it, would it be that your feeling on that? Is, is, is the first love bikes? I think it's a it? totally different culture. It's a totally different way of looking at life. You know, motorcycles are um, much more about... They're much more people person kind of centric I think you know the technology is interesting and the bikes are fab they're, they're very I love looking at bikes like old bikes you see the technology on them and you just see some of these machines out here, are just wonderful the way you can see that somewhere in a workshop someone has gone okay well what if we turn the pistons around the other way and put the engine in the other way around and and somehow we've got to stop it as well and you look you can see the engineering that's gone into this machine um, and they're kind of tangible, whereas Formula One now is so technical. It's so far out of reach of most people's... You can't do it in a shed, can you? There's no, no chance. No. Well, we're out of time for this morning, so I better, better wrap things up. But do, do come back at 2.30, because there'll also be the opportunity this afternoon for you to ask questions as well. We'll have a, we'll have a roving mic, so um, you can ask that burning question you've always wanted to ask, Damon. But for now, just uh, like to thank the 1966 Formula One world champion, Damon Hill. Thank you, Damon. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome back to the main Williams stage here at Race Retro for um, our second interview of the day um, with the star guests. We're also joined by um, another special guest this afternoon um, who's going to help us talk around the wonderful collection of Williams Grand Prix cars. Um, I'm Damien Smith, the editor of Motorsport Magazine, and uh, it's uh, always good to be back at Race Retro. Um, so I'll introduce our, our guests now. First of all, um, the 1996 Formula One world champion, Damon Hill. Thank you very much. And to join us as well, Jonathan Williams, son of Sir Frank. Right, welcome, chaps. Um, this morning, Jonathan, we, we purposefully avoided talking about the cars too much because we knew you were, were going to be here this afternoon. Um, so we'd like to go in a bit more detail about each of these wonderful cars here today. First of all, though, I guess the two of you have something in common and that you both grew up around the sport. It's not simply something you've, you came to as a, a, an adult. Um, how old were you when you started going to races with your dad? I sort of have memories. I can sort of trace memories by the shapes and light, uh, visuals of the car. And I can remember... At the time, we had the Dutch Grand Prix in Zambor. It's a beautiful seaside location. I think July or August time. So that was always the family sort of outing to a Grand Prix. And I can remember being absolutely terrified as my mother held me up to the catch fencing around the back of the paddock looking out for the Williams. And I can sort of, I have that sort of flashing image of what was an FW06 going past me. So late 1970s, 1978, 1979 was when I can sort of first remember being at races. So Alan Jones, the Fly Saudier, green and white cars and a great privilege to be all the way through to today still enjoying enjoying these cars factory side and track side Damon obviously you're considerably older than Jonathan so uh, uh, you go back a bit further Maybe. <laughs> you must have mem amazing memories of uh, the 60s I guess and well, it's, it's very similar to, to Jonathan you know I was too young to actually know exactly when I was conscious of being at a racetrack so uh, if you go on Wikipedia and, or whatever it is, Google, you go on Google and you just say, put my name and you go on images, you'll see pictures of me in racing cars when I was an infant, you know, when I was at a baby. In fact, one of the first pictures is um, 
uh, of my christening, and it's got Sterling Mosses there and uh, Tony Brooks and uh, uh, and Bruce McLaren. I mean, it was so. I was taken uh, to race tracks, garages, test tracks, putting cars. I can't honestly remember when I when I first knew that this was a car. To be honest. Um, we also should add that we're going to give you a chance to ask some questions to, to both Jonathan and Damon um, a little bit later. Um, but first of all, let's, let's start with the, um, the 1990 13B over in this corner here. Um, so this, this car, Jonathan, wasn't a car that Damon raced, but it was certainly one that um, he, he tested. He started his Williams career with. Correct. So FW13 started life as a race car late in 1989, won the season finale that year in Australia. And then in B specification, as we see now, was the race car for 1990. Won a pair of races, one each for Ricardo Patrese and Thierry Bootsen. But we were developing key technologies that would... Uh, be very successful in some or all of the other cars that we have around here, such as the first Williams to have the semi-automatic gearbox would race in 1991, and we would bring back active suspension for 1992. So we kept FW13s uh, as test vehicles to carry those technologies, and I believe that they were therefore your first mileage as a Williams driver, probably in January, February 1991. Yeah, I do remember it was very cold. Um, I always been at school, so yeah, it would have been cold school. there too, but I wasn't but actually there. I managed to warm things up. I was explaining earlier, Damien, you know, because I went round and managed to go round too slowly because I'd misunderstood the tachometer and I thought I was going faster than I was. And I actually went round Silverstone so slowly that the engine overheated and set fire to the car. So that was my first experience of Williams and um, uh, of, of this. But it was great to work with with the technology and the team, you know, with uh, these amazing technicians that went on, and some of them like Paddy Lowe, you know, that is now right at the top there, and Adrian Newey, and, and obviously Patrick. It was great to work with these um, amazing guys. So at the time, you were still racing in F3000. Um, so what was it like switching from what is, you know, a very powerful but still fairly basic uh, single-seater to trying these systems where um, it, was, it was cutting edge technology at the time? Well, uh, much more interesting than a Formula 3000 car. There's, you know, it's fairly limited and fairly, I suppose it was, it was fairly basic uh, technology in a 3000 car. It was just made to work. And it was, but the power to weight was similar. Um, much more exciting, though, an F1 car. And, of course, these days we've got such limited testing that uh, young drivers these days really don't have the opportunities that you had then. How, give us a rough, rough idea how much sort of mileage you were doing and how many days you'd be doing a... Uh, we used to, um, there was one test we did at, uh, at uh, Estrel, I think, where they gave out campaign medals for the amount of days we'd been at the front. Um, and uh, so you'd spend a lot of the winter pounding around Estoril or Jerez or Barcelona and uh, it, it got you fit, I can tell you. You know, you, we were pretty exhausted at uh, the amount of miles we used to do. And of course, that was the basis of how you eventually got the race drivers because they knew you so well from all these miles. So it paid off. It was worth it. It definitely was. And you, you knew that when you're in F1, you've got to give 100%. So in testing, although it's testing, and I was a test driver, you know, I knew that I, would be, I was going to be judged on how I performed on every lap. And, um, and I loved it, actually. I liked, I liked the graft. You know, I, I just, it was good. Well, let's move on to the, the 15C, which is over our, our left shoulder here. Um, so 93... Grand Prix car. Jonathan, just tell us a little bit about the history of this particular car. Well, this is a FW15C chassis number 02, and it's actually Damon's race car for the first 14 races of a 16-race season. So I think with the exception of the last two Grand Prix in Japan and Australia, so all of Damon's race history from 1993 is with this car, from the first race start as a Williams driver in South Africa, the first Williams and first career podium in Brazil, first uh, career pole position in Manicor, and then opening the uh, hat-trick of wins, debut wins. So it's the 1993 uh, Hungarian, uh, Belgian, and uh, Italian Grand Prix winning car. So very high history, but all specific to Damon race winning, uh, race history car. Fantastic car for you. This is a very personal car for you in that case. Well, you know, the, the, the thing is, these are your homes. You know, when you're, when you're in a race, your cockpit is your, is your environment. And everything that happens to do with the, the event is seen from that perspective. And uh, so very, because you're at such a heightened uh, state of, con of concentration and stuff, so you know, it, it, it is amazing how powerful those memories are. And uh, you know, I could probably jump in that now and I could probably remember which buttons did what. <laughs> uh, but the astonishing thing was, is, is that if you look at photographs of this car, um, 
when it's on the track, it, you, you, you think there's something wrong with it because it's so close to the ground. The suspension was unbelievable. And we, had an, we have an adjuster on the front. You can adjust the ride height by half a millimetre and it would make a difference. And of course, you look at the side of the cockpits, they're so low down on your shoulder. I mean, in terms of safety, it's a different world from one, one we know today, isn't it? Well, sadly, of course, after Imola, the, the, you know, the, the cars have changed because of the tragedy uh, with Ayrton and, and with Roland. But, uh, so it's true, you look back and you look at this one, the cockpit sides are very, very low. Our shoulders were sticking out and the heads were pretty vulnerable. And uh, probably the most vulnerable I've been is in, uh, is, was in the Brabham, I think, actually, was sort of looked like I was going to fall out of it any, any moment. And we had quite a few questions to the magazine this week asking you specifically about driving active cars uh, compared to passive cars. So you were going through the whole test process of uh, learning about these cars. You, you'd raced what was at the time the most sophisticated Grand Prix car by a long way, this one here with active suspension, traction control, all the gizmos, as they called them then. The 94 um, was the year they, they banned them, of course. So you, had the, uh, you went from, from active to, to, to passive. Just tell us a little bit about what it was dri like driving the active cars, first of all, in terms of uh, the mentality you had to put yourself into. Um, so the active car or the p passive? The active, active car to start with, yeah. The active car to start with. Well, I mean, it's, um, it's, got a, it's, got a, it's not strictly speaking, if Jonathan will correct me, but it's not strictly a fully active car. It's, an a, it's a computerized platform, isn't it? So it's got suspension on it, but the platform is, is controlled by the computer. Um, and... What it does is it, it, doesn't, it doesn't give you like a you know, wonderfully smooth ride. It's still pretty, pretty brutal. I mean, it's a hell of a lot of grip and uh, you feel the bumps. But um, what it does do is you can, you can alter the pitch of the car. So you can play with all kinds of attitudes uh, that the car, uh, to optimize the performance of the car. And we, we tried everything, including banking the car into a corner, just like a, a motorcycle. So uh, you, could, you could get some very uh, strange effects. But... Um, it was, it was such a, it was such a class of its field at the time that it was everything was in comparison to what else was was around you, and uh, uh, it was way it was way ahead of everyone else. But it wasn't easy to drive. It sometimes had. I think Alan found it slightly bizarre at times. Yeah, he was, he, he was dominant in the car. I think as your teammate, but he was never comfortable with it. I think he said he never really gelled with the active suspension car and I think similar for Ricardo Patrese if you look at 91 and 92 which was the FW14 in both guises passive in 91 and active suspension in 1992 Ricardo was pretty much a match for Nigel Mansell I think actually out qualified in 97 over a 16 race season and up until the halfway point was ahead on points but if you look at then 1992 the difference in performance between Nigel and Ricardo in the active car Nigel seemed to be on another level and I think active cars they were. I think there's also a little bit of, a, or not perhaps the active cars, but certainly the very dominant Williams cars of this period. There was an incorrect theory that they were easy to drive, which I think, as you've just explained, is quite the opposite. You still had to be at a very high level with the car. That technology brought with it different driving responsibilities and different driving levels. I think, I think they were very physical, and I think that's where Nigel came into his own. You know, he could actually, in the big corners, he could, he could actually hold on to the thing. Um, and I think that, uh, I mean, I, had, I know I had to be pretty fit and uh, develop pretty strong neck muscles and arm muscles to, to drive the damn thing because it, was, uh, because it was generating so much downforce. So the FIA banned the systems for 94 and the FW16 was a passive car again. Um, it was quite a tricky car from understand, but certainly the, the beginning of the season. It was quite, you know... Yeah, once they got rid of... So there was a lot of undoing of all the hard work with the active and going back to something that... Was a, was a retrograde step, but I think that, it, that um, at first things weren't quite right, and it took, it took us a while to get the car anything like uh, the, the, the car that it should be, and you know, it was designed to be. Um, uh, so it was, it was all a bit uh, of a kind of reworking um, and relearning what was, what was already known, but it just, for some reason, it just uh, didn't actually happen automatically with the, with the new passive car. Do you remember a specific test or race where you felt it had suddenly clicked that you'd, you'd got back into the groove with the, with the car? No, it was more. It's just more generally over the season. I mean, the, don't forget the whole package was changed after um, they brought in the regulation changes in '94. So uh, you know, it, it, it was really a um, it was a car that had been um, 
butchered in many ways. You know, it had the diffuser taken off the back of it and uh, the wing end plates were taken off. So a whole lot of stuff had happened that wasn't, it was never originally designed to, to, to cope with. Okay. Well, we'll move on now to the 95 FW17, which is behind, behind my back here. Jonathan, just give us a little bit of a, a precy of the history of this one. Well, in some ways, it's a continuation of the regulation changes that Damon just spoke about. If you look at the FW15 to the FW17's right, the FW16 that we just spoke about is a similar car aesthetically and conceptually to the FW15. But because of even greater regulation changes at a point where a new car is coming, 1995, it takes on a very different view to its predecessors. So the first raised nose Williams, it's also... Uh, the beginning of the three-liter era of V10s. The capacity was cut for, at the end of 94 from three and a half liter. And it was, a, I mean, we were quick in 1995, but it was a bit of a, a difficult season. I think it's very fair to say that the car wasn't as reliable as we needed to be to challenge for the world championship. I mean, it's a bit of a blip. We talk about this car from a Williams Heritage point of view. It won five Grand Prix and finished second in the championship over the season. And if Williams were to achieve that in 2016, that would be a fantastic result. But its three predecessors and its two successors were all world champions. So it wasn't perhaps the most satisfying season. And I think in the beginning of the year, the car simply wasn't reliable enough to allow uh, Damon and David Coulthard to bring home the results. And I think in, in the car's debut in Brazil, uh, you were long gone. And I think something on the rear suspension failed and dropped you out at the bottom of the centre S quite late in the race and a lot of other systems problems later in the year. But still, five Grand Prix victories, it's still a car not to be sniffed at. And this particular example is uh, one of Damon's race chassis from 1995. And with this car, you won uh, in Hungary that year. So another Damon race winning car. Good circuit for you, Hungary, wasn't it? Yeah, I won my first in that one there. <laughs> so uh, I won my first race there. And I had uh, nearly won a race in an Arrows as well. So uh, I clicked with Hungary, all right. There's not many people who can say they almost won a race in an Arrows. So there you go. So um, it's funny, isn't it, how perception changes? Because I remember first seeing pictures of this car and thinking, God, that's ugly. But now, you know, 21 years later, actually, it's aged really well. And it's, really? Uh, do you did, not think? Did it? I don't think doesn't look really I don't think it ever looked ugly Jonathan what do you think of that I, I think we should be very upset with that don't you <laughs> well technically it's for sale so if we could avoid saying it's ugly that'd be great so but I suppose over time you know the, the wide track that they still had yeah, then and uh, you know the, the fat slick tires and everything it's on, on wets on this occasion but you know it's a it's a it's a dramatic looking thing isn't it I think the dimensions on these cars with the wide track, I mean, I much prefer the wide rear tyres as well, but I do like the wide track. Uh, I know they're looking at it for 2017, aren't they? They're maybe making it a bit wider and also bringing the, the wings down. I think, I think the aesthetics of Formula 1 cars are important. I think they need to look right. And, I, and modern F1 cars are inordinately long and thin. They look like they're going to fall over. They look, they look very strange. I mean, they, and that's all because regulations were brought in um, on the grounds of improving overtaking and, and the safety. But I'm not sure they made them raceable. I'm not sure they made them better for, uh, for drivers to get in and actually race. Um, do you own any of your racing cars at all? No, I don't. No, uh, I do. Jonathan just said this one's for sale. So well, I heard that. Yeah. Um, Here we but go. I, I, I expect. Well, I, I, it's not. If I want, if I was going to get one, it would be that that one there. But I expect I can't afford it. Well, moving on to the. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying money. to have a good time here. Come on. <laughs> Jonathan, as we're talking about um, the '96 championship-winning car, this is the 20, 20 years ago. This year, this car won the world championship. Uh, tell us about it. Well, FW18. Uh, from a statistical point of view, this season and this car represents the most successful year for Williams in the World Championship. It's commonly associated with perhaps the 92 and 93 seasons, but in a 16-race season, we won uh, 12 Grand Prix, eight for Damon and four for Jacques Villeneuve, and uh, six, of those, uh, six of those 12 race victories were one-two finishes, and we amassed 175 points on the old, old, old money point system, and I think with about four or five, maybe half a dozen races to go. We'd locked away the Constructors' World Championship and we'd ensured that the driver's uh, title would be a private affair between Damon and Jacques, which of course went all the way to the uh, season finale in Japan. And the car that we have here at Race Retro today is Chassis 4, so the fourth of the, of the six cars that were rotated amongst the uh, race team that season. And it's the most successful FW18 there is. Uh, 
Uh, of those 12 victories, four came in this particular car here, chassis number four. And this is Damon's race-winning car from the uh, San Marino, Canadian, French, and uh, German Grand Prix of that year. Hence, it's in its German Grand Prix livery, non-tobacco, as it finished. Yeah, that would be quite expensive, wouldn't it? With yeah, a Grand Prix heritage like that. Yeah, it's a fantastic... I mean... You know, it's just, pretty much his anyway. It's his name's on it. And well, I, I, he can drive it any time. I like Jonathan to look after these cars for me because I know they're going to do goes. a fantastic job of keeping them in tip-top condition. So um, there's a lot of maintenance involved in just keeping them, you know, museum could do. But these are, these are runners, aren't they, Jonathan? They'll yeah, be, I mean, yeah. You, you last drove this at Goodwood in 2014 and you'll be back in it at some stage, I'm sure. And some of the modern drivers, uh, contemporary drivers, like Felipe's driven them, hasn't he? Uh, uh, I think, has I he think. had a go on this one? I've had quite a few in them. In the last half dozen years, this has actually been a very active car, not only at the Goodwood Festival, but also at private Williams events where we run heritage cars. We have a, a sponsor partner day where we go to Silverstone and we bring various uh, cars together. I think, I think Felipe Massa has driven this. I think Pastor Maldonado has driven this. And I think one of the Nikos, either Hulkenberg or Rosberg, has driven this car as well. I think it was actually Rosberg because, uh, strangely, Hulkenberg couldn't actually fit in, which is a bit sort of... No, he's big. Yeah. That's, he's called the Hulk for, for a good yes, reason. Yes, he couldn't actually... F but uh, I think it'd be, you know, it'd be really great if they could drive these kind of cars um, on a track in anger, you know, and actually get a feeling for what it was like. I mean, they should, they should take them to Estoril and get them to do about 10 days testing. And uh, with <laughs> see what they think of it. They would like that. I mean, actually, most of them are actually quite gentle, but the guy who does actually push when he's in the heritage cars is Valtteri Bottas. I mean, uh, he really sort of, I mean, blows the, cob the uh, cobwebs off the cars, so to speak. I mean, actually, there's a few sort of winced eyes when Valtteri goes out in a heritage car because he only has that mode. It's just flat out the whole way. And, but there's always a big smile when he gets out of the car at the end of it. Well, before we throw the um, uh, questions to the floor, um, I'll just ask you about the heritage side of things, because, Jonathan, you're looking after that side of the company now, and it's uh, uh, a lot more of a business now than it used to be. It's no, no longer just a collection of cars, it is a business. Just tell us a little bit about what, uh, what the plan is and what the aim is with the, the heritage side of Williams. Well, we've... In a way, we've, we've sort of done a very good job of accumulating and collecting our cars over the years. And in the late 1980s, we actually presented them for the first time in an on-site museum at our then factory in Didcot. And of course, that moved across to Grove, where we are now. But uh, we have, as our group CEO, for about three years now, uh, Mike O'Driscoll, who has a lot of experience in the automotive industry, and in particular, was very influential with the Jaguar Land Rover group and their heritage. When he arrived to take position with us on our board and to direct our company from a commercial point of view, he saw that really it was potentially a very rich resource, rich culturally and historically as well as commercially, that perhaps we could be more proactive with. So a little, over, a little under three years ago, myself and Dickie Stanford, who after the better part of 30 years in the pit lane, retired from racing, we were given resource and we were given a mission statement to not only ensure the cars going forward for Williams, but to try and tap into commercial possibilities for the cars, engage with car collectors, try and find marketplaces for them, anywhere from fully operational Williams heritage cars all the way down to a car that may have some race history but is not available as a, an operational car. You tend down the years to build more chassis than engines that, that your engine partner would actually uh, gift you or contract you at the end of each season. So we're finding some good, good and strong opportunities for how we can expand upon what is a uh, quite an expansive uh, collection of cars that we've accumulated in nearly 40 years of being a constructor. So it's early days, but the progress is good. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for allowing four of them to come here today to be displayed. It's great to see them all together. So now this is your opportunity to ask the burning question to Damon, or indeed to Jonathan. As you can tell, he's an encyclopedic knowledge of, uh, of Williams. So uh, any questions from the, from the floor? Andrea's got a microphone here, so she's going to come on over. Hi, Damon. Um, what's your thoughts on this closed cockpit that they're talking about? Because obviously you touched on Ayrton and the accident that he had at Imola. Um, do you think that could have been preventable had there been a closed cockpit? Yeah, they, they've looked at different um, uh, systems and I've heard this kind of halo thing they're talking about is, is one that they like. Um, I, I do think that it's something which seems to affect the drivers uh, more than anyone else. I know that the sport's got a responsibility to protect the drivers, but um, if the drivers are willing to take the risk 
without uh, having closed cockpits and they're comfortable with that, then uh, why not let them? Um, uh, I don't know if it's necessary to, to impose it. I mean, I think it would be rather, it'd be better if it was done with, with consent from the drivers. And since it seems to be that they're the only ones that are going to be exposing themselves to the risk. So maybe a GPDA vote should be the, the way forward here or something like that, maybe you're... Well, I certainly think uh, I, I would echo a lot of the comments. I noticed that uh, Lewis was saying that drivers need to be consulted more. And I think there has to be a way of, uh, of, of taking on board the driver's viewpoint uh, of the sport. After all, these, these cars are, um, they're designed, uh, there's two ways to look at it. Either you look at it that the drivers are employed by the teams and they just give them the car and they drive it. Or you look at it that this is a sport that uh, celebrates um, the excitement of driving fantastic cars, in which case the drivers could or should have some view on whether or not these cars are, are, are great things to drive or not. You know, and if they don't like them, then I think that comes across when it comes to the marketing and selling of the sport. Because, uh, you know, certainly Nigel, I mean, a lot, you know, Ayrton, you know, you think of Ayrton in, in the McLaren uh, V12 Honda. You know, it was a beast, wasn't it? Uh, and see him manhandling that and seeing Nigel in the Williams. You know, they, they were impressed with the cars. They got out and their eyes were on, even they, their eyes were on stalk. So, yeah, that's what you need. You know, that's, that's the thing that sells. Um, and if the drivers are not pumped up by their cars, then I think you guys, all you guys get a wind of that and you think, well, I'm not really sure this is um, everything it can be. So I think I went off track a little bit when it comes to the rollover thing, but uh, it comes back to the same thing, which is that uh, do ask the drivers, you know, ultimately, would Ayrton have wanted to have a closed cockpit? Uh, you know, what would he say? We can't ask him. This is the conundrum we're in. We don't know. But I think that bef before we get to that stage, you know, drivers accept the risk. That's always been the way it is that they, they whether they race around the Isle of Man on motorbikes or whether they race in Formula One, you know, the competitor has got a, a, a valid point of view, whether they want to accept the risks or not. Okay, good question. Any, any more? Got another one here. Um, yes, who, who do you um, look up to in your driving career from test driver right through to retirement? And then to modern day, um, what's your views on, on who's, who, who you look up to most? Are you looking at talking... Do we all ask, answer this one? I mean, I... I uh, I think they're all, I mean, there have been some, there have been some um, drivers who have been very entertaining um, and uh, they're perhaps not, not the ones that, uh, that you would be picked out as being the top of the class. I think the great thing about the sport is it brings out different personalities and there isn't a single world champion that's got the same personality as another world champion. They're all incredibly different. There must be some common denominator there, which is that they're intensely competitive, but it's, it seems to me... The way they show their competitiveness is a fascinating part of the sport. And Ayrton showed his differently to Alan Prost. And uh, Piquet showed his differently to Mansell. And, and these are the things that I think interest us. Um, so uh, to pick one out, you know, obviously I've got to say my dad. Um, because uh, <clears throat> I felt very much that he... Uh, uh, and and um, Motorsport did a fantastic tribute to my dad, uh, was it last year? And... Um, you know, when you read through what he did in his career, uh, and I think it's Quentin who actually listed, Quentin Spurring wrote, wrote a list of the places he went to, the cars he drove, the tracks he drove on. The guy just about covered everything in his career, and he did it because he loved it, um, and um, he won two world championships. So I think, uh, all in all, he did, he, you know, he's definitely still my hero. I think it's a fair answer. I <laughs> said... Um, we'll have some more questions. Where's, uh, Hello. where's the mic gone? Okay, ah. thanks for giving us a, your time, Damon. It's very kind of you. And I'd like to draw your uh, memories back to a couple of events that always spring to mind when I see your face anywhere. One of them was, we've already mentioned, in the Arrows. And the moment that you passed Schumacher down the pit straight... What would your thoughts be on that? And I would like to have heard what you, what you felt at that moment. And the second one, which is a little bit upsetting for you, I must admit, would be when Schumacher ran into you and you uh, drove back to the pits, and I don't know who it was from Williams, put the hand on the track control arm or whatever, 
and that disappointment in your face, and everybody in the country, I think, felt the same. What were those two feelings like? Well, they're, um, they're all pretty intense feelings. I think you've chosen two very, very powerful moments here in my, my career. I think we'll deal with the first one, which was the Adelaide, the Adelaide incident, which was I came back in the pits, and I, and I have to say, I, I mean, I looked at the suspension, and, I'm, and it was Patrick, I think, Patrick Head, who had hold of the suspension and was trying to bend it back into shape. And I remember thinking to myself, if you think I'm driving around here with a bloody suspension you've bent back into shape, you've got to be kidding. So uh, I was a mixed emotions because on one hand, I was a bit anxious he was going to send me out again. And on the second hand, I was actually very disappointed to have lost the world championship and we wouldn't get out. But I mean, there was some question as to whether or not they'd change. Uh, do you remember the story at all, Jonathan, about whether or not it was possible to change the suspension? Well, you sort of pick the... I've heard some quite elaborate versions. I mean, one of... One of the mechanics who was at Adelaide 94, who I'm not sure if he was on your car, but he actually said, but of course it's a degree in hindsight scenario, he said if you actually look at the fact that we went on to win that race with Nigel, and Adelaide always being a great race of attrition, he did a, a post-race mental calculation of how quickly they could have changed a wishbone, and where you would have been running in the race, and that if... Uh, and he reckons you probably could have got to sixth place on merit, which would have given you equal on points with Michael, and then we could have parked Nigel from the lead and given you fifth, and given and you'd be, and it, it just you kind of you couldn't have parked Nigel from the lead, right? Let's just get that one thing yeah, completely so clear. It just kind of blows your brain a little bit when somebody puts I've seen There's you, a lot yeah, of ifs here, it, which is F1 spelt backwards, and you sort of you just get so many different scenarios. But uh, I, I think it depends who you speak to. I mean, they say. Some guys say they could have changed that wishbone arm in eight minutes. I heard somebody say he could do it in two, but I think we all said, here's a car, go for it, and we'll all watch you, and he sort of backed down yeah. at that moment. And, uh, well, it will never know. One of those wonderful uh, sporting moments, uh, but it, from my point of view, it was a, it was a huge day of, of, I tried, but I failed, sort of thing. Um, but the, I, I did get a lot of satisfaction out of overtaking Michael uh, in, uh, in Hungary, uh, in the Narrows, uh, because I knew he was toast. And um, so, uh, so it was, <laughs> it was uh, yeah, I've not, not laughed so hard in a racing car, I don't think ever, but anyway. <laughs> and I still managed to drive as well. Okay, we've got another question over, over on this side now. Um, do you think that the FIA have become a bit too nannified in terms of health and safety? Damon mentioned aesthetics of the car, well, in terms of the power and the looks. So you're saying it's, it's become too safe, or...? Do you think health and safety is taking priority over right. the sport itself in terms of looks and power? And yeah, is there, is there too much health and safety in modern Formula One? Well, I mean, um, I think this is interesting, because this, when, what I do is, I, you know, since I started working with, with Sky, and I, I'm listening out to what people are saying about the sport, and uh, obviously our job is to, to be positive about the sport and be very up about it. I mean, there's a lot to be celebrated and a lot to be proud of. I mean, the safety record now is fantastic. I mean, we've had, we have had a fatality, but the, the, the sport is better, I think, for not taking um, risks that are, uh, let's say, irresponsible. And so we've got to be responsible, but at the same time, we are there to entertain and excite. And, uh, and so where does that excitement come from? You'd want it to come from the actual competition and also the speed. That is a, that's an unavoidable fact. You know, that's actually why, it's, why people do it. The speed, the excitement, so the circuits are important, the cars are important, and whether the drivers are getting a big thrill out of racing these cars is important. So, um, yeah, too much regulation in anything, I think, eventually kills, this, kills the life of the, of the thing, if you're not careful. Jonathan, what's your opinion? This sport's been part of your life, well, for all, all the way through, from your, pretty much from when you were young, so you must have a good perspective on this. In terms of health and safety? Health and safety, has it gone too uh, far? I think, and before I say this, I think there are signs of improvement in the last one or two seasons, but I'd like to see a little less accountability when it comes to drivers' wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing. I think, as Damon said, there needs to be responsibility you, there's no excuse for, for deliberately forcing another guy off the track being uh, brutally aggressive to gain advantage, but they are racing and there is going to be a little bit of bumping and nudging when that happens. And coming from a team that for three seasons had Pastor Maldonado on board, we were, and he's not quite the villain that he's actually made out to be. The guy's just a very hair trigger response, aggressive racing driver. And uh, I just think that you need to let these guys race. And I think that 
perhaps not quite far as NASCAR in terms of rubbing his racing because there's greater accountability with an open wheel racing car. But, and I think it is getting a little bit better, but in the last sort of, in the better part of the last five seasons, it has been a little bit frustrating that not just Williams drivers, but seeing other drivers pulling off something on circuit that was very enjoyable to watch, added to the entertainment. It made the race more exciting. It progressed the race, it advanced the team from our point of view's position, and there's immediately accountability for it. Whereas if you look down the decades of motor racing, it's not so long ago that things that were accountable by penalty were just simply let go. And certainly from the days when we had, I mean, such a phenomenal racer as Juan Pablo Montoya in the car, I think Juan Pablo would have been driven crazy if he was in Formula One in the last five seasons because the guy was just so good at actually enforcing something on track. But sometimes it was... It, it, it was just right on the edge of what was acceptable, but I think that's where racing drivers should be. Yes, I'm sure Montoya would definitely agree with you on that one. I think we've got time for another question. Two more questions. So, Fabulous to see you. Just wonder if you can confirm the rumours that you're possibly going to be knighted this year in your 20th anniversary of your services to motor racing. If you didn't hear that, is Damon going to be knighted this year? Um, I, uh, I, I haven't got any letters. <laughs> So, uh, and uh, certainly, uh, well, uh, uh, what do you think? I don't know. It's not up to you. It's not up to you. It's up to them up there. And uh, no, but uh, I want to avoid that question. I mean, you know, I think Sir Patrick, you got, we got Sir Frank and Sir Patrick now. So I embarrassed Patrick last year massively by, by saying or asking whether I should bow down in front of him or kneel or something. You know it's coming back then, don't you? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he is... Uh, it, I think that, that um, uh, it's, I did my bit and I've got everything I could possibly want out of the sport and uh, I don't want any more. I'm, I'm enjoying my time with Sky and as long as I don't say anything stupid, you never know. <laughs> okay, I think we've got time for one more question. A uh, question for Damon. Uh, could you explain how uh, difficult it was during your last season uh, with Jordan and how was Eddie Jordan to work with? Warts and all, please. We can't do the warts and all here. You know, they're children present. You know, I'm sorry, but uh, there are, I've worked with, uh, we were saying earlier, I've had three, maybe four, if you include Dennis Nursey, uh, four team bosses that I've worked for in Formula One. They're all very different, very entertaining. But I've known Eddie since I started because uh, we all started with Formula Three and, and, you know, and Formula Ford and stuff. And I actually lived in Ireland for, for five years when I was racing. So I could actually see where Eddie was born out of my bedroom window, uh, just down there in Bray. As long as you can't see Eddie out of your bedroom window. I couldn't see Eddie. And, uh, and I was driving for an Irish team when I was living in Dublin. And we won the first ever race for, for Jordan. And uh, I've got a very, very um, soft spot for, for Eddie and his family. And, uh, but he's completely barking mad, obviously, you know, he's, uh, he, he's, he's got so much enthusiasm and so much energy. I don't know what he, where he gets it all from, um, but it's, it's slightly chaotic uh, sometimes with Eddie. Does he know anything about cars in terms of doing Top Gear? Not a clue. Not a clue. <laughs> he knows a lot about money. Yeah, we'll be uh, entertaining, if nothing else. So I think we're out of time now. I'm afraid we are, yes. But thank you very much for some very good questions there. Um, hands together for Damon Hill and Jonathan Williams. Thank you.